Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vikulskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. And I'm joined by Tony Keith Jr., who is the author of the brand new book. He's actually a poet, How the Boogeyman Became a Poet. The book is available everywhere, and it's just a fantastic, uh, basically a masterpiece of poetry and uh, uh, well, Tony, just kind of describe for me the writing style here, because it's nothing I've ever read before. Oh, wow, sure. Uh, How the Boogeyman Became a Poet is a young adult memoir written in verse. And for those who may not be uh, sure what verse means, um, essentially it's poetically formatted language throughout the entire book. And so uh, there's rhythm, there's rhyme, there's imagery, there's metaphor. And so the book is sort of written in a series of... Um, Almost poems, but they're more like structured poems. They're stories that are told in poetic ways. And so that's what you've got in front of you. It's memoir and verse. And it's a memoir of growing up in a uh, world that didn't accept who you were for yourself. And when people hear poet, a lot of times they think of, oh my gosh, Iowa Writers Workshop, one of the big uh, poetry f- uh, factories that we have in the United States. You're not a classically trained poet. You're a Ph.D., and you just happen to have this talent on your own, right? Yeah, that, that's all facts. I, uh, I, and as, as you'll see in this memoir, I started writing poetry as a child. It was just a way to, not a child, well, more like, yeah, well, I was a child. Uh, I wrote my first poem in third grade. I even shared that in the book. And so um, I remember a teacher, of course, like teaching like a poetry unit, but really learning to like love language uh, back as, as, as a kid and like how rhythmic it could be. But it wasn't until my teenage years when I really started dealing with you know, my identity and trying to figure out how I'm going to get to college and I think that I'm gay and a lot of that stuff where I started writing poems more to just process my emotions. Um, and then, you know, I'm a, you know, 80s baby who grew up in hip-hop era in the 90s. And so, you know, I remember listening to some of my favorite rappers who, of course, are also poets uh, and just thinking about that rhythm and language. And so that's where the spoken word came from. So it sort of evolved from this written, like, school-based activity to uh, something that was more personal, uh, to something that was more about performance. Um, and my Ph.D. is in education leadership, and I focus specifically on educators who are poets, spoken word artists, rappers, and MCs. <laughs> you know, that was really the the great era of the beginning of the rap era with music. And I, re- I remember as it started, and, you know, so late 80s, early 90s. But as you were struggling with all these things about your sexual identity and dealing with racism as a child, was it until the rap artist started that it, it really became sort of you were able to expel these thoughts from your mind and put them on paper? Was that the first time? Ooh, that's a really great question. Um, the first time that I, well, you know, actually the wonderful thing is the connection between that is, you know, within hip-hop, a lot of folks might not realize that rap is literally just poetry spoken over a time to beat that must rhyme, right? And so I'm not a rapper, and that's, you know, the p- biggest thing, but when I would look at the lyrics, you know, I was growing up, you know, we could buy the CDs or the albums and you could read the actual lyrics, and I would read... Tupac's lyrics, and they were poetry. I could read Queen Latifah, it was poetry. I could, and I was like, oh, this is this beautiful connection between poetry and rap. Um, but the performance of it all definitely came around, like, the Bad Boys era. Um, I write about in the book how me and some of my friends during a junior uh, year uh, talent show in high school, uh, we performed the rock and roll version of Puff Daddy and, um, uh, what was this song? It was all about the Benjamins, but it was, like, the rock version. And I did Jadakiss' rap on stage, and I remember the audience, like, being all excited, and just, like, the braggadocio, the fun, the energy, the joy, the swag that comes out of hip-hop absolutely played a big role in helping me develop my confidence as a spoken word artist. 
something that stood out to me as I read it in the book, and it was maybe a quarter of the way through, and it, it stayed with me ever since I finished it, is this full-length mirror that you had that you took from place to place where you lived. What was the significance of that full-length mirror in your life? Yeah, uh, so the full-length mirror uh, is uh, a represent, it sort of represents the metaphor of the boogeyman. So in this book, the fears that I'm wrestling with are internalized racism, internalized homophobia, and also sort of an internalized like poverty mindset or belief that I will never uh, be able to have abundance um, in the ways, like financially, in the ways that, you know, support big families or whatever that might mean. And so when I would look in the mirror, there was a fear of myself, a fear of seeing myself. Um, and readers will learn in this book that, you know, the first time I began to develop a fear of who I am and how I see myself occurred when I was around like six years old. Um, and there was a mirror that was in my bedroom closet uh, one night. And that just, that sort of, that memory about looking at myself and feeling scared just, just became the anchoring metaphor that I just kind of brought with me throughout the book. A part of the book, I mean, some of the book is funny. A lot of the book is funny. And even if you, you, have, to, you have to put aside the, the, uh, uh, serious undertones of it, but you talk about knowing a script too well, and it talks about finding a girl going, I think, mini-golfing and carrying books to school. It's almost like something out of Leave it to Beaver or the Andy Griffith show, but so I guess as you're hearing these things as a child, did you accept them just as almost religious dogma, and or was it pounded into you like religious dogma? Ah, you know, that's a really great question also. You're really good at this, Brian. Um, I wouldn't say pounded in so much because it didn't feel, uh, I, did, I guess I didn't realize then as a kid how, uh, like, influenced I was by magazines and media and books and movies. Like, just, you know, the world was just sort of, show, sort of showing me that the only way to kind of exist in the world was to be straight. And so, but I knew as a kid that I didn't necessarily feel straight. And so there was this need to just sort of, okay, if I learn how to act, if I learn how to perform, right, I'm a poet. Like, if I can perform straightness, if I can perform uh, safe blackness, if I, can perform, like if I can perform, how do I do that? And so I would take cues from the movies. And when I was growing up, there were no movies, at least I knew of at the time, that ever showed two people of the same gender together and falling in love and romance. I didn't know what that looked like. And so I was like, well, I guess, you know, whatever I see on the television, which to your point is the leave it to beaver kinds of moments, because that's what I thought I had to do. I'm chatting with Tony Keith Jr. about his book, How the Boogeyman Became a Poet. It is available everywhere. And it's so when you have that boogeyman, it seems like that's such a, a universal phrase that we all have accepted. And it can mean all kinds of things to different people, whether it's a, a head cold coming on, you know, the boogeyman's here, yeah. or whatever. But uh, getting back to your childhood, you had this very supportive, you had a, a family that was very supportive of you, but you were still afraid to kind of open yourself up to them. And so what is it that held you back from opening up to even the closest people to you? Yeah, uh, what really held me back, and I write about this quite a bit in the book, is because, again, this book is written uh, between the period of 1999, spring 1999, to so about fall 2000. So I'm, it's written in the voice of 17-year-old me, sort of engaging in these flashbacks. And I offer that is because this was the day, like right when the internet, at least I was becoming, I was getting access to it, and I also did not know any gay people. And the reason why I say that is I didn't know what I was feeling, and so I, I didn't, I couldn't put words to it. And so if someone were to ask me, Tony, are you gay? I don't even know if I could have said yes because I kind of hadn't done nothing yet. I, you know, I write in the book about how, you know, it's not like I'm out here kissing boys. I'm not doing anything. I just feel different, and so. I don't know I would have been able to say, yeah, ma, yeah, pop, yeah, grandma, I'm gay, because there was nothing 
to substantiate that, if that made sense. I had no concrete evidence besides what I was thinking and feeling in my heart. That was you. You kind of presuppose the next question I was going to ask. When uh, when you're when you're getting these feelings before an age when anybody is really acting out in a physical or sexual manner, yeah. and is it something that you you don't understand the feeling, or is it a matter of that it, this is a taboo thing in life, or how did it eventually manifest itself in the fact that okay, it's okay to have these feelings even though they're not what we see on on the, the cultural zeitgeist. Oh, that's great. Uh, and this is where I believe the poetry connects, because as a kid, wrestling with believing that I'm gay but not really sure because I'm still performing very straight. In the book, I have a girlfriend, uh, and my girlfriend, uh, Blue, in the book, and my two very wonderful uh, best girlfriends, is what I say in the book, girl-friends in the book, gifted me books written by Langston Hughes, County Cullen, Nikki Giovanni, and I'm remembering you know, how I would read those books and then how that also somehow processing my identity and my, you know, and sexuality through poetry was just a very helpful way to process all that. That's the best way I can describe it. It was, it became okay because I could write about it without needing to tell anybody. So I was still human, right? My feelings still were valid. They still existed. I just had to write about them in metaphor, right? And so that's, that's really what I was doing. I was writing these metaphors about love and what I desired for love, sort of thinking about my girlfriend as the, you know, the character in the poems, but not really, but wrestling with my sexuality through the poetry is what you see me doing throughout the entire book. Um, and it's not until, you know, again, I discover my community. It's not until, I, you know, again, I get into, readers will learn, I discover chat rooms later on that sort of I start meeting other gay men and begin finding community and meeting other people who are like me, right, when it be, all began to kind of make sense. Um, and then, and then I was already a poet by that time, so, you know, it really was how the boogeyman became a poet. But that fear uh, did not, I did not start believing myself with that fear until my early 20s. As somebody who's written a lot of words, you understand how important language is. And I was a child of the 80s. I'm just on the good side of 50 right now. But when I grew up, the word queer was used a lot. And then for a time, that was a taboo word. And you didn't use queer. Now it's completely acceptable to say that someone identifies as a queer. When does when did that word become so universally accepted as an identifier versus uh, being looked at as a slur? That is also a wonderful question. And the reality is, I'm not sure of the exact time period, but I'm someone I do not identify as queer. And uh, But I know plenty of queer... I have to be careful, because I don't want to make it seem like, oh, but I got friends who are queer. <laughs> but the reality is, I do have actual like, friends and family members who identify as queer. And so I think that, if anything, um, having language to name uh, or to provide a safe space for you to sort of name your sexual identity, I think is where the most helpful part about your question is, right? And so for me, the cue, if anything, as a kid, I probably would have identified as questioning, right? Like, question. I probably wouldn't have said gay. I'd have been like, you know, that cue for me would have been questioning. Um, but uh, I identify as a cisgender gay man, um, and so I'm not quite sure when the timeline happened, but uh, that, I think that's the way it works. And I do use the word queer in the book on purpose. I think there's a, uh, it might have been the, the second or third chapter in the book, and I say I arrived as a queer kid full of questions. Because when I Google the definition of queer, there's something in there about curiosity and difference. And I was like, oh, I love the way that that word, that language makes sense, you know, in this context. Well, it's a phenomenal book, and the way that you wrote it made it so fun to read. The book is How the Boogeyman Became a Poet by Tony Keith Jr. It's available everywhere. Tony, just a fantastic work here, and I thank you for joining me to talk about it. 
Thank you so very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Take care. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. I'm your food man. That's what I am.